Welcome back, friends. Bill Creasy here with Wednesday's episode of Scripture Uncovered. I could not wait to get back with you today to find out what happens to Paul at Caesarea. Now, you might recall, when Paul arrived in Jerusalem, trouble met him. Word was out that Paul had been teaching all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to abandon Moses, not circumcise their children, and not observe the customary practices. When Paul was spotted near the temple, a riot erupted and Paul was nearly torn to pieces, saved only by the quick intervention of the Roman authorities. Wanting to get to the bottom of the issue, the Roman commander had Paul brought before the Sanhedrin to listen to their charges and to give Paul an opportunity to defend himself. Well, it didn't go well. Again, a near riot erupted and Paul was escorted to the Roman barracks where, as a Roman citizen, he was placed under protective custody. Meanwhile, Paul's young nephew learned of an assassination plot against Paul. He reported it to the commander who transferred Paul from Jerusalem to Caesarea with a protective escort of 470 armed soldiers. St. Paul stayed at Caesarea Maritima for nearly two years, A.D. 58 to 60. He was emphatically not a prisoner. Rather, he was a Roman citizen protected from the Jews by the Roman government until his legal issues were resolved. As Claudius Lysias, the Roman commander, said in his letter to Governor Felix, I discovered that he was accused in matters of controversial questions about their laws, the Jewish laws, and not of any charge deserving death or imprisonment. During Paul's stay in Caesarea, he was housed in the Praetorium, the palace that Herod the Great had built, where Pontius Pilate had lived, and where the current governor is in residence. So we put right into our text at chapter 24, verse 1 of Acts. Five days later, after Paul had arrived in Caesarea, the high priest Ananias came down to Caesarea with some elders and an advocate, a lawyer, a certain Tertullus, and they presented formal charges against Paul to the governor. When he was called, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since we have attained much peace through you, Governor Felix, and reforms have been accomplished in this nation through your providential care, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all gratitude. But in order not to detain you further, I ask you to give us a brief hearing with your customary graciousness. We found this man to be a pest. He creates dissension among Jews all over the world and is a ringleader in the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to desecrate our temple, but we arrested him. If you examine him, you will be able to learn from him, for you yourself will know everything about what we're accusing him. The Jews also joined in the attack and asserted that these things were so. So Ananias, 
served as high priest from A.D. 48 to 59. A Roman sympathizer, he was accused of cruelty by the Samaritans and tried in A.D. 52 in Rome, but he was acquitted by the Emperor Claudius. Our ancient historian Josephus tells us that during the great Jewish revolt of A.D. 66 to 72, Ananias fled Jerusalem, but he was captured by his own people and murdered. Ananias arrives in Caesarea with a delegation from the Sanhedrin accompanied by a very good attorney, Tertullus. And in court, Tertullus opens in classic epidictic style, showering Governor Felix with extravagant praise before presenting his case against Paul. We continue reading. Then the governor motioned to him to speak, and Paul replied, I know that you have been a judge over this nation for many years, and so I am pleased to make my defense before you. As you can verify, not more than 12 days have passed since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Neither in the temple, nor in the synagogues, nor anywhere in the city did they find me arguing with anyone or instigating a riot among the people. Nor can they prove to you the accusations they are now making against me. But this I do admit to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our ancestors, and I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and written in the prophets. I have the same hope in God as they themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. And because of this, I always strive to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After many years, I came to bring alms for my nation and offerings. While I was so engaged, they found me. After my purification in the temple without a crowd, or a disturbance. But some Jews from the province of Asia, who should be here before you to make whatever accusation they might have against me, or let these men themselves state what crime they discovered when I stood before the Sanhedrin, unless it was my one outcry as I stood among them that I am on trial before you today for the resurrection of the dead. So St. Paul is no slouch himself in the rhetorical department. He too begins with praise for Governor Felix, and then Paul addresses the charges against him, flatly denying them. And again, deflecting the issue of resurrection, a legally irrelevant matter that would be dismissed from court. It's really fun to watch Paul and Tertullus work their strategies. Then Felix, who was accurately informed about the way, postponed the trial, saying, When Lysias the commander comes down, I shall decide your case. He gave orders to the centurion that he, Paul, should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that he should not prevent any of his friends from caring for his needs. So Paul will be under protective custody in the palace, free to come and go to a large extent, free to meet with his friends, but within limitations, 
lest he be harmed. So Governor Felix quickly cuts to the chase. He's heard both sides of the argument, and he'll withhold judgment until Lysias arrives from Jerusalem, and here's his testimony. In the meantime, Paul continues in residence at the palace. Now, Marcus Antonius Felix was procurator of Judea from AD 52 to 58. Although accused by several Roman sources of improprieties, in general, Scripture presents Felix in a positive light. His wife, Drusilla, was a Judean Jew, the daughter of Herod Agrippa I, who perished in the eruption of Mount Vesuvius on 24 August, A.D. 79. We push on with our text, chapter 24 at verse 24. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He had Paul summoned and listened to him speak about faith in Christ. But as he spoke about righteousness and self-restraint and the coming judgment, Felix became very uneasy. He said, you, you may go now. When I find an opportunity, I'll summon you again. At the same time, he hoped that a, a little bribe, a little bakshish, would be offered him by Paul. So he sent for him very often and conversed with him. Two years passed, and Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. So Paul spends two years under protective custody in the palace, and it seems like uh, Festus liked listening to Paul. He summoned him many times. They sat together, they drank wine, they talked. But then, after two years, Felix's term was up, and Festus came in as governor. Now, wishing to ingratiate himself with the Jews, Felix left Paul in prison. That is, the case undecided, not shackled in a prison, but the case undecided. So it seems to me that St. Paul is finally getting the downtime that he so desperately needs, staying at the palace, protected from Jewish plots, free to socialize with his friends, and invited to converse with the governor. As we learned, Felix was well acquainted with the way, and he enjoyed his discussions with Paul, although they often made him uncomfortable. But that should come as no surprise. As we study St. Paul's letters and epistles, we might feel uncomfortable too. Now, we read that Felix hoped that a bribe would be offered him by Paul. That's in chapter 24, verse 26. Literally, a little money. Even today, in the Middle East, I know I've spent 30 years traveling around the Middle East. Even today, a little gift or bakshish is expected for even the most trifling service. It's not a pejorative term although it can be if it's applied judicially or politically, but just a little tip. Now, does Paul not give the expected bakshish for moral reasons? Or is he simply content to stay at the palace 
and relax. Herod the Great built that palace, a fabulous place, with a freshwater Olympic-sized swimming pool jutting out over the Mediterranean. Who wouldn't like to stay as a house guest for two years? Greasing a few palms might help resolve the legal issues more quickly. In his culture, in his day, it would be customary, not at all questionable, unless it were excessive. But St. Paul's time with Felix concludes after two years when Festus succeeds Felix. Festus will be governor from 60 to 62. Now we read that Felix failed to resolve Paul's case, leaving Paul shackled by the legal issues to ingratiate himself with the Jews. Felix could simply have dismissed the case and that would be that. But the incoming governor would have a riot on his hands in Jerusalem. So rather than cause a problem, he simply leaves things status quo. Why swat the hornet's nest for his successor? Now, three days after his arrival in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and Jewish leaders presented him their formal charges against Paul. Now, get that. Paul's been in Caesarea for two years. The new governor comes in. After three days, he goes up to Jerusalem, as he should, to meet his constituency, if you will. And the first thing they do is present formal charges against Paul. They're just not going to let this go. They ask Festus as a favor to have him sent to Jerusalem, that is Paul, for they were plotting to kill him along the way. These are seriously angry people. Festus replied that Paul was being held in custody in Caesarea and that he himself would be returning there shortly. And he said to the authorities, let your authorities come down to me. And if this man has done something improper, let them accuse him. But I am most certainly not sending him up here to Jerusalem. So Festus does exactly the right thing. On taking office, he travels up to Jerusalem to meet with his major constituency, the Jewish leaders. Of all the things that could possibly be on their agenda, Paul is still a major pain in their butt. Festus handles the issue properly, saying, no, you come down to Caesarea and I will hear your accusations. So after spending no more than eight or ten days with them, he went back down to Caesarea and on the following day took his seat on the tribunal and ordered that Paul be brought in. When he appeared, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem surrounded him and brought many serious charges against him, which they were unable to prove. In defending himself, Paul said, I have committed no crime either against the Jewish law or against the temple or Caesar. Then Festus, wishing to ingratiate himself with the Jews, he is, after all, the new guy, the new governor. These were his constituency. He said to Paul in reply, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem 
and there stand trial before me on these charges. Let's have a little compromise here. Paul answered, I am standing before the tribunal of Caesar, and this is where I should be tried. You are the governor here. You represent Caesar. I am a Roman citizen, and this is where I should be tried. And if I have committed a crime or done anything deserving death, I don't seek to escape the death penalty. But if there is no substance to the charges they're bringing against me, then no one has the right to hand me over to them. As a Roman citizen, I appeal my case directly to Caesar. Then Festus, after conferring with his counsel, his attorneys, said you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. So Festus hands this, handles this very well. He knows that as a Roman citizen, Paul should not be handed over to the Jews. But by offering Paul the option to be tried under Roman law in Jerusalem, which he knows Paul will reject, it opens the door for Paul to appeal his case directly to Rome, which he does. And with that, Festus solves his problem. He doesn't offend the Jews, for appeal to Rome is Paul's right as a Roman citizen. And he allows Paul's case to move forward to a definitive conclusion in a neutral jurisdiction. After Festus confers with his legal counsel, all the I's are dotted and the T's crossed, and Paul is off to Rome, where, after a nice, all-expense-paid two-year rest in Caesarea, the Lord said he would go. Now that is pretty slick. With that settled, Paul sits back and awaits transportation to Rome. Meanwhile, guests arrive at the palace, King Agrippa and his sister Bernice, Marcus Julius Agrippa II, A.D. 27 to 100, was the son of Herod Agrippa I, the one who, you recall, was eaten by worms and died in Acts chapter 12, and the great-grandson of Herod the Great, the last king in the Herodian line. Governor Festus, mentions Paul's case to King Agrippa, who asks to meet Paul. We read in Acts 25, beginning at verse 23. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great ceremony and entered the audience hall in the company of the cohort commanders and the prominent men of the city. And by command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa, and all you here present with us, look at this man about whom the whole Jewish populace petitioned me here in Jerusalem, clamoring that he should no longer live. I found, however, that he had done nothing deserving death, and so when he appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. But I have nothing definitive to write about him to our sovereign. Therefore, I brought him before all of you, and particularly before you, King Agrippa, so that I might have something to write as a result of this investigation. For it seems senseless to me to send a prisoner to Rome without indicating the charges against him. Well, that's a real problem. 
Festus's polite gesture of having Paul appear before King Agrippa serves a twofold purpose. One, Festus defers to King Agrippa, his political superior, and two, by having Agrippa interview Paul, Festus gains credibility for his decision to send Paul to Rome. And so Paul begins again his now familiar testimony in Acts 26, verses 1 through 23. We know Paul's testimony. We've heard it already. But Paul does a very good job presenting his defense before King Agrippa. It is classic courtroom rhetoric. But all the talk about resurrection raises eyebrows, much as it had in Paul's speech at the Areopagus in Athens. There, his listeners scoffed. Here, the reaction is different but nonetheless, fatal. We read in chapter 26, beginning at verse 24, while Paul was speaking his defense, bringing up resurrection, elaborating upon it, Festus said, the governor, in a loud voice, you are stark raving mad, Paul. All your learning has driven you mad. Paul replied, I am not mad, most excellent Festus. I am speaking words of truth and reason. The king, King Agrippa, knows about these matters, and to him I speak boldly, for I cannot believe that any of this has escaped his notice. This was not done in the corner, King Agrippa. King, king Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, so you'll persuade me to be a Christian, hey? And Paul replied, I'd pray to God that sooner or later, not only you, but all who listen to me might become as I am, except in these chains. Well, he's not wearing shackles. I think he, he holds up the charges against him and the appeal to Rome. Paul's taken, as a missionary, Paul is taken off the board. So as Paul's speaking, Festus's face shadows with doubt and perhaps embarrassment. Not about what Paul's saying, but about Paul's sanity. As the new governor, he might also be thinking that it was a really bad idea to expose King Agrippa to Paul, whom Festus now believes is tottering on the brink of lunacy. And when Paul addresses King Agrippa directly, Agrippa, Agrippa's response drips with scorn and sarcasm. What? You're, you'll persuade me to play the Christian? And again, Paul's chains are not literal but metaphorical, referring to his ongoing legal problems. Paul clearly has not been imprisoned and shackled at the palace for the past two years. He's free to come and go within limits of his own safety. Then the king rose and with him the governor and Bernice and the others who sat with them. And after they withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing at all that deserves death or imprisonment. And Agrippa, the king, said to Festus, the man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. What were you thinking? Now we have to foot the bill to get him to Rome? And goodness knows how long he'll be waiting for his trial to come up and we have to house him. 
Festus must have had mixed feelings about King Agrippa's statement. In Festus's view, Paul might be half a bubble off plum, but he's not harmless. If Festus simply released Paul, the Jews in Jerusalem would go after him like a pack of Rottweilers after raw meat. It's better to get him out of town. So, Paul is off to Rome. I can just see it. Packing his suitcase, getting a suntan lotion, his sun hat, getting all ready to go. And on Friday, Paul will set sail for Rome. Oh, I can't wait for that one. All right, folks, I will be back with you on Friday when we put out to sea with St. Paul. Bye-bye now.